to today's A Slice of Medieval. A little bit different today because we are A Slice of Medieval Goes Rogue. So we're not sure what's going to happen. Our first Goes Rogue guest is also our first repeat guest. So very big welcome to Ben Kane for joining us to talk about his latest book, Napoleon's Spy, set in 1812 Russia during Napoleon's Russia campaign. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Sharon. It's great to be back. Uh, yeah, we had great fun the last time, so th thanks for inviting me uh, back a second time. It's lovely to have you here, but you are a bit of a guinea pig because we've never done Outside Medieval before, so we're not quite sure what's going to happen. Although 1812, the Napoleonic era, is my second comfort zone, so <laughs> we're easing ourselves in. <laughs> Okay, yeah, well, I'm happy to talk about it. There's a, there's a lot of stuff there, as you as you probably know. Um, so hopefully your listeners will enjoy the talk. I'm sure they will. So, Ben, you've made your name writing Roman history novels, then moved on to medieval with the Richard the Lionheart trilogy, and have now taken a big leap forward by about 600, 700 years with your latest novel, to Napoleon's Russian campaign. What drew you to this era? For listeners to your podcast who, who don't know me, I've had 14 novels published about uh, ancient Rome or set in set in ancient times. And publishers are quite conservative. Uh, they're, they're, they're very much of the of the sort of line. Well, you're doing really well with your Roman novels. So why don't you write another one? They're quite cautious about letting authors jump around the place, certainly if they've got a track record of, of doing that. But and then you get a name, or in my case, I got a name for writing Roman novels, but I've always loved all periods of history. It was never my intention when I started out in nearly 15, 16 years ago to just write about Rome. It's what happened. It wasn't my intention to do that. I will happily visit a, a great a great house or, or a museum or, or an archaeological site to do with pretty much anything wherever I am whether that's in Britain or when I'm on holiday or somewhere else in the world I don't just obsess about Romans so to be given the freedom by my publisher Orion um, to you know actually they, they wanted me to do a different time period with the which, with the Lionheart books they were really happy for me to do other periods as well and so it came about because I had this book called 1812 by an historian called Adam Zamoyski. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. He's he's British of Russian extraction or Polish extraction. And um, I'd had it literally for about 12 or 14 years. A friend had given it to me raving about it when it came out. But I had very small children. So I, I didn't have the time to read anything, let alone <laughs> a book that was set outside my time period, if you know what I mean. And then again, your listeners may not know, I, I work as a bike guide uh, for a company called Ride and Seek, shameless plug there, <laughs> who do these incredible bike trips, uh, usually three to five weeks in length. Uh, and one of them that they do is called the Napoleon. And it used to go from Paris to Moscow. And even before the Ukraine war, they stopped doing that because Russian truck drivers are insane. Um, it used to go to St. Petersburg. And nowadays it just goes to Estonia, to Tallinn. And I was asked four years ago to do the first week. Well, I, I was asked to do the whole thing. But again, I, my kids still aren't, you know, they're not old enough for me to just go by. I'll be back in six weeks. And um, and so I, I I read this book, 1812 by Zamoyski, for the first time. And it literally blew me away because it reads like a thriller. But it's based on firsthand accounts. So that Zamoyski is, is, is a polymath in languages, whatever you call that. He can he can read and write in in about seven different languages, and he hadn't just used the ones translated into English. He'd gone and read all the sources from the Polish officers who'd survived and the Austrians and 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 so on, 
And and I, I read this book and just said, I need to write a novel about this. And my editor was very excited and I didn't get to do it for three years, but in 2023, it's come out. So so sorry, that took me a few minutes to explain, um, but, but that's how I came to do it. And uh, obviously the whole Napoleonic era is, is a huge canvas, isn't it? So you focused in presumably on the Russian campaign because you had read that book and were enthused by that. So you didn't have any thoughts of doing any other part of the of the Napoleonic period, like Peninsula War or or anything else. The impetus came from Zamoyski's book. Yes, yeah, and you know I'm a child of the '80s, so uh, like like many of you, I read the Bernard Cornwell Sharp novels when they were first coming out. I, I didn't I didn't keep up with them, but I read the first ten or fifteen, and I loved them. And there are so many other authors who've written about the period, obviously Patrick O'Brien, and then you've got the other naval novels and you've got the Hornblower novels. And I, I, yeah, so I wasn't drawn to the Peninsular campaign at all because so many people have done it. And that's not to say it can't be done again. Often, often other authors cover time periods that other people have, have written about. But for me, it was it was I really wanted to write about that campaign, just that campaign. Uh, and I I also got a, you know, real dart of delight that Cornwall hadn't done it. And of course, he hadn't done it because Sharp wasn't there. So I was thinking, well, here's a here, here's something, you know, <laughs> cataclysmic and hugely important. Yeah. <laughs> I would argue it's the reason wrote, uh, that Napoleon lost Waterloo. And uh, and and it actually hasn't been mm. covered. Uh, War and peace, you know, is 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 about it a lot. But it's two hundred. That's two hundred years old. That book, or one hundred and fifty years old. There are very few, if any, contemporary um, novels about it. So it seemed like a huge opportunity to 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 seize. Uh, and and the the first hand accounts just made it. I mean, it, the book wrote itself. I'm not. I'm not being funny. It really did. The the, the first-hand accounts are so in depth that, mm. that I I put a couple of fictional characters in and just populated it with everything else that had been written down by men who were there. You do find that actually with the Peninsula Wars. There's so many, like you say, first-hand accounts, diaries. I mean, the famous one is the Recollections of Rifleman Harris. But there are so many others, mm. both from from every point of view that mm. you've actually probably got too many too much source material indeed yeah and that is the case so i i read probably half a dozen in their entirety and flicked through about four or five others but i could never you know unless i'd had several years i could never have read all of them but thanks to an incredible textbook written by a man called austin who wasn't even um that's his surname he wasn't even uh, an historian he was just someone who loved the period. And he spent 25 years of his life bringing together all those first-hand accounts, more than 150 of them. Uh, and he drew them into one volume, which is about 1,200 pages thick. And it literally details June the 24th, crossing the Neiman River. You know, Sharon's here in her regiment doing this. Derek's here in his regiment doing this. Ben's here and, and literally goes through person by person and quotes what they were doing. And I, I use that book exhaustively. Sadly, sadly, Mr. Austin is dead or I would have sent him a very expensive case of champagne as a thank you. Because it, it without that book, it would have been so much harder to write. I guess that the time period... I mean, there must be something about that time period and the length of time the wars went on, the number of people who took part in them, that is the reason why there are so many personal accounts. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, arguably, they say it's the first, it's actually the first world war, don't they? They, they do say it's the first one that was global because it's the first time that the Americas were involved in a European yeah. war. yeah. Mm. Yeah, because the Americans were helping the French, weren't they? Mm. And there was the War of 1812 was sort of an extension yeah. of the Napoleonic yeah. War. Yeah. What was the most difficult aspect of embracing an entirely new historic landscape? And one that's probably more similar to today's landscape than when writing Roman and medieval history, isn't it? Well, it's funny. I didn't find a great deal of difficulty moving to a new time period because I'd... I'd, I'd um tackled that uh 
I want to say jinx, but I, I broke, you know, I got I got rid of that mm. gremlin by doing medieval after 13 or 14 Roman novels. So I actually found it quite easy to move into a new time period, which was which was great because I was a little worried about that. But the single biggest problem I had, which I suspected I, I would have, was the extraordinary grimness of the campaign from the word go. That the casualty levels and mortality among animals and men and the suffering was literally off the scale. Mm. It was industrial mm. in it in its in its quantity and size, and that was that ramped up even more when the retreat began. And so I faced a situation which I suspected I would face, and indeed my editor noted it, and so did the two historians who read it that the retreat section of the book could become so grim that it actually became unpleasant to read. Uh, and so I was very aware of that. I I did, I did edit it a bit. Uh, I also made a real effort to have moments of humour and lightness. And I was doing it specifically because it was so grim. And then I actually ended the book before the end of the retreat. So there was a uh, people who don't know the history. Uh, Napoleon left Moscow in the middle of October, the 18th of October, I think it was, uh, stupidly late. It was already snowing. And um, between the 18th of October and the 5th of December, which is only uh, about six and a half, seven weeks, 90% of the men who left died or froze to death or were killed by the Russians or starved. And um, there was a final sort of um, defining battle at a river called the Berezina, which I wanted to visit, but is in um, Belarus, close to the Ukrainian border. So kind of a scary place to go right now. Uh, and that um, was when, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but there was no bridge. There were Russians on both banks uh, succumbing in. There was no building materials. And somehow Napoleon's engineers fashioned two bridges and the men crossed and there were tens of thousands of civilians. And, you know, the Russians were coming in with mm. cannon. So you can imagine the scene. And I ended it there because after that, the road to Vilnius, which is the capital of Lithuania, and what happened in Vilnius and after that, was it was even more horrific. And I, I just couldn't sustain uh, uh, any kind of lightness. It would have just been beyond awful. So so I ended it there. And some readers have found the ending curious because I didn't explain why. And, and, and part of me thinks, oh, I should have put it in my author's note. And part of me thinks, no, it's like a sort of cinematic ending. You know, you think this guy gets away, but you don't know. Mm. Uh, and go and do a bit of digging yourself and find out what happened because... Maybe then you'd understand. Um, you know, it was it was it was it was kind of depressing to write at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've talked about the abundance of of sources. Were you able to find in those sources any sort of sort of anecdotal lightness that you could you could use to to offset the grim? Yeah. Yeah, no, and what was just wonderful was that the the sources of lightness were there. I didn't have to make them up. No. So, uh, I mean, and sometimes it was grim, but, you know, in desperate situations in war, people joke about grim things, you know, people, doctors and nurses. And when they're in uh, uh, the, the, the midst of some kind of awful emergency, you know, I know for a fact there are jokes. Uh, people under pressure make jokes. They might be inappropriate outside the situation, but it's what people do to cope. Yeah. So, you know, there were there were there were two instances like there was a general lying on the side of the road dying. And a soldier started pulling off his boots and the general said, I'm not dead yet. And the soldier saluted and said, I'm sorry, mon general. And he just waited for five minutes till the, till the general was dead. Now that's awful, but it's also kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. You know, there was another one. There was a, there was a, a regimental dog that had walked from Spain and Portugal to France, to Russia and was retreating with its owner and got frostbite in its paws. And so he picked it up and put it in his backpack. And I went, that dog is becoming a character. And he, he got christened by me, Marshal Ney, N-E-Y, who was one of the most <laughs> iconic of, of Napoleon's generals. And, you know, the dog made it. And so, because I, 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 you can't kill a dog in a story like that. <laughs> and then there was another time where 
you know, these the, 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 everyone was basically dying and freezing and starving. And some soldiers saw saw um, uh, a beehive in a tree. And obviously there were no leaves on the tree. And two of them went up the tree, like 30 feet up the tree and were battering this beehive with sticks. And there were there were lumps of honeycomb just falling on the ground and everybody was scrambling around, just stuffing it into their mouths. So I used that as well. So things things like that just sort of they literally jumped into the book. It's like, oh, yes, that's great. Look at that. That's in it goes in it goes in it goes like that. Yeah, it was it was the, the, these kind of moments of lightness they, they any of them that appeared got used. Definitely. I suspected that there would there would be that because. Uh, my father wrote a diary during the Second World War, and and you know a lot of it was grim, but there were always little sort of anecdotes or sidelines which which leavened it somehow. Yeah, and um, I think it's sort of essential, really, that they that they that they do that to, as you say, to get through it to to survive yeah. as human beings, almost. Yeah, and the sheer. The sheer scale of what you you were you were sort of ploughing through in a sense means you've got to highlight those individual little nuggets of of gold, don't you? Really? Yeah. Just to again set the scene for your listeners, you might not know, approximately five hundred thousand men, and we're going. I'm going to say between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and forty thousand horses. A lot of them cavalry, and then the rest draft horses left. Um, Poland and Germany in May 1812 and they crossed the river Neiman into Lithuania in June 1812 and the 5th of December is regarded as the end of the campaign when when the last stragglers got to Königsberg which uh, is nowadays Gdansk in Poland and again figures are very inaccurate and, and estimated but it's not unreasonable to say that as few as 20,000 men got out and probably less than mm. 5,000 horses. And that was mm. in five months. I mean, it's just, it's just mind boggling. So one of the questions I sometimes get asked is, you know, did, did Napoleon soldiers start to lose faith in him? Uh, and incredibly they didn't. Mm. Uh, and certainly they didn't on the way in because these weren't men from Spain and Portugal who by then were losing. These were men who'd been with him all over Central Europe and Germany, and they'd fought at Austerlitz and and Wagram and Eilau, and they were used to kicking everyone's arse mm. and winning and winning and winning and winning. And uh, and even when the situation was bad, they still, you know, they still maintained their love for him um, because he was he was he was he was a nutcase in my opinion. His <laughs> ego was just an egomaniac, but he did have an extraordinary ability to inspire love and charisma and he he had an extraordinary memory he could walk up to a man in the middle of a rank of others and go i remember you you got the such and such medal at that battle didn't you and the guy would go we my emperor and they would all cheer you know so he was he was very good at um at leading his men and even if he wasn't good at saving their lives so the protagonist is matthew carey it's Carey. It's Carey. Uh, that's a surname here in Somerset, um, which is one of the reasons I wanted to use it. I also wanted to use it because it's the name, it's the surname of the family in the Ronald Welsh novels, uh, which are fantastic young adult novels, one of which called Escape to France mm. is set at the time of the French Revolution. And uh, that's the family name through this series of books. And it's also a, it is also a surname in France. So I, it fitted, it just really fitted. And I, I put in several homages to Ronald Welsh in the book because it was one of my favourite historical novels when I was a boy. Yeah, because he's half French. His French father, English mother. Yeah. And apparently he's always been confused, never felt like he fit in in England. Yeah. Um. So what made you go with the, the half French, half English protagonist? So um, it was... It was it, I, ha I have to be practical about my about my choice of characters because over 70% of my readers are British. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm readers mm -hmm. all over the world, but the majority of them are British. And so, you know, some of them are interested in any period of history like, like I am, and, and some of them aren't. And, and a lot of them would be much more interested in British history, uh, maybe than French history. So 
if I wrote, if I'd written a novel about a Frenchman in this army, mm-hmm. potentially it might have limited the appeal of the of the novel, which, which is entirely reasonable. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not complaining about that. And I, I'm not precious enough to go. Well, it was a French campaign, so it has to be a French. It has to be a Frenchman. I thought, how can I make this appealing to British readers? And I looked into it, and I mean, I, I had an idea. There were thousands of emigres after the revolution. Looked into it. Yeah, there were literally thousands mm-hmm. of French royalists living in London who'd fled from 1789 onwards. The trade over the Channel was busier during the Napoleonic times than it had been before the war, because <laughs> of smuggling brandy, gold, and prisoners of war. So Napoleon bought British gold because he didn't have enough of his own. Uh, escaped French prisoners of war who had enough money made their way to the to Kent, and the Kentish fishermen rowed them over to, to to France in guinea boats, which were named because they so many of them carried gold guineas. And there were, you know, there was information about that. And there was also a lot of espionage. There, there were a couple of textbooks about that. The British had agents in France, not as many as they would have liked, but they had lots of them. And so mm-hmm. there was evidence of espionage. There was evidence of cross-channel traffic. There was evidence of French royalists living in England. I didn't find any evidence of some of them marrying English people. But I mean, that's what happens when any people from one country go to another. They end up marrying yeah, yeah, they must have done. They must have and, done. And so, yeah. you know, if you if you went and found yeah. British people with French names, I'm sure you'd find some of them whose ancestors had been those those emigrants. And so, so I went right. I'm going to have, I'm going to have this half French, half British guy. So he'll be fluent in French. How can I get him over to to uh, to France? You know, in in a sort of reasonable way. And I wanted to have a, a George Macdonald Fraser Flashman esque character. Because although I hated those novels as a teenager and stopped <laughs> reading them after about three, because I really, really disliked Flashman, <laughs> I had it in my head. I've always wanted to do an anti-hero because my first sort of six novels, anyway, maybe more, the heroes are just like good guys who do good things and only sometimes do bad things, and everybody likes them. And I wanted to create someone who wasn't like that. And Flashman was what came into my head. So I decided to make him a gambling addict because there's a terrific <laughs> scene in the Welsh novel Escape to France set in a gambling salon. And we know loads about gambling at the time. There are even the rule, the rules of various mm-hmm. cards. And I learned a carte, which was one of these <laughs> very popular games. I played it with my son for months trying to work out how to play it. And yeah, and and I had him running some prisoners of war over to try and make up money for his gambling debts, and then he gets stranded in France. And I won't I won't explain anything more, but he's stranded in France, half French, half English, can't go back to England, ends up in Paris, and somehow ends up in Napoleon's army, and and there becomes this sort of reluctant, unwilling witness to what's going on because he's not a soldier, he hasn't got a vested interest in being in the campaign particularly and yet can't get away from it either. So, uh, and obviously he gets drawn into conflicts because you, you couldn't not, but but it, mm-hmm. I, I hope, and I think that it was a reasonable premise for someone to be there because often, you know, throughout history, people get dragged into things that they never meant to and then they can't, the events take on a life of their own, don't they? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. He fights a lot of duels, doesn't he? He's uh, He gets himself into... <laughs> He gets himself into a lot of trouble, basically, uh, with ease, I should say. Um, yeah. So it was this was a thing at the time, was it? Fighting duels, it was popular, if that's the right word. Yeah. So uh, thanks, thanks for bringing it up. Uh, anyone who buys this book or or the audio book or the Kindle version will see the unusual <laughs> thing of an historical note at the very yeah. beginning, <laughs> which I've never done, and it's very short. It's only a page. But I did it because, you know, there are there are keyboard warriors out there who love to pick holes in <laughs> in things and including novels. And it's common to get a negative review sometimes from someone mm. who actually yeah. thinks they know yeah. more than they really do know. I mean, you've, we've all had that. Fair enough. The review <laughs> just goes, I don't like this book. I think Ben Kane is a crap writer. Like I can take that. But when they accuse the writer of something that they think they know and they're wrong, I wanted to preempt those type of reviews, which w- would be, well, no single guy could fight that many jewels in such a short time. It's ridiculous. Well, funnily enough, it isn't. Uh, and 
Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelist, is based on a Joseph Conrad short story, which was based on the true story of two French army officers, one of whom was on the 1812 campaign, who fought close <laughs> to 30 duels with each other over a 20 year period. <laughs> and so my character fights far fewer than that, but he does fight the same guy. And uh, and and in one of those wonderful uh, coincidences that uh, sometimes happens, a textbook on dueling came out in <laughs> the year before I was researching this book. Like spot on. Instead of coming out, I've had textbooks about yeah. the books I've written come out after <laughs> I've written the book, but this one came out before, and it it was really good. I devoured it, and um, I'm happy to say two Napoleonic academics read my book. Read read this Napoleon spy. One of them is mainly Peninsular campaign, but he knows a lot about dueling, and he he, he loved it because he said I got dueling exactly right. And then the other guy um, is a Georgian, as in the country, a Georgian academic, and his his specialist period is is Russia, and he didn't find any mistakes in the book, which I was I was really surprised by, but absolutely delighted. His only criticism was that he said. No one man could have seen all the things that this guy did because he could see all the all the sources I used. <laughs> and I went, yes, thanks, Alex. But of course, I was going to use all the yeah. best bits from the first hand accounts. I know it's impossible, but 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 the most readers won't know that. So so the, yeah, there are there are there are a number of duels, um, and yeah. everything that happens within them, you know, is is documented. Uh, and the, the one of the thing that springs to mind is the phrase that just I used, I think, in every duel. Magnificent. Imagine yourself. You've, you've got yourself into a, an <laughs> argument. You've challenged another guy to a duel. You're standing there in some park pointing this massive pistol at, at him and he's doing the same to you. And in a couple of seconds, you could be really badly injured or dead. And this phrase that survives is, the, so the the man, the two seconds who were the people who backed up the fighters, one of them would hold, he would stand slightly to one side in between the two of them. So out of range of being shot, but in both their vision. And he would hold up a handkerchief. And when he dropped it, you could shoot. And the wait for the second to drop the handkerchief is described as being the longest wait <laughs> of a man's life. Because it's like one second or two seconds, but you know it really, really encapsulated the stomach-clenching fear of "Oh my God, he's going to try and kill me, and I've got to try and shoot him as mm. well." So yeah, just really great material uh, to have when you're writing scenes like that. And it adds a new, a different dimension to the story as well, doesn't it? Which is what I wanted to do, yeah, yeah. yeah so you've got yeah. the macro and the micro, don't you? You've got this great yeah. campaign, and but you've got to have the character having having his own shit to deal with. <laughs> Excuse my French, um, or my English. <laughs> I didn't want to be picky, but I was going to say that's not French. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask: Have you read War and Peace? No, I've listened to it. So I'd never read it as you know, as a boy or a young adult, and I'd never had the time since. But I thought I have to, and it's too big. So it's sixty hours of listening, but I, I did listen to the whole thing. Yeah, I did manage it. I actually did you. I actually read wow. it. I challenged myself in my twenties, and I did. I think it took me about half a year. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. So again, I looked at that and went, I don't have the time. I so I listened to it while I was on um, a fixed bike, you know, cycling in, in the house during the winter. And the I, I'm trying to think two things I can remember, two bits of information. One is that Tolstoy wrote uh, that Napoleon had burnt Moscow, mm. which is really interesting because we know now that he didn't. It was the Rostopchin, the literally insane governor of Moscow, did it. Uh, but that was clearly what Russians were told at the time. So there's some spin for you. We know it's not true. And the second one that um, I made it that I made it into the book was the description of there's this vile drink that the <laughs> Russians used at the time called kvass, which is fermented potatoes, I'm going to say. And it's not quite vodka and it's really disgusting. And the French, the French soldiers drank it because, you know, it was alcohol, but they described it as. It was either pig piss or donkey piss, <laughs> and that and that went straight into the book. <laughs> oh dear. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I never read it. I just I could. Well, I started to read it about ten times. I just thought I I can't be doing with this. 
I didn't have a, a reason, I suppose, to get through it as you did. I wouldn't I wouldn't have made it through it if it hadn't been that I was writing the novel. It's because it 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 has like most writing that's from previous times, it has dated very, very much. Yeah. So it's it's heavy going. And he mm. does go off on these long, rambling page upon page yeah. debates about spirituality and religion and everything. And it's like, mate, where was your editor? The editor was drunk on Kavas. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know about Russia in 1812. I don't want a four-page diatribe on, on you know, this type of angel or that <laughs> type of purgatory or whatever i can't remember i just i did speed up the audio well yeah i read it because i was devouring everything napoleonic thanks to bernard cornwell i was finding every book that had ever been written on napoleon fiction and non-fiction well i did my dissertation on um the um lives of soldiers in the peninsula war so i was yeah i was searching for everything so i thought well i better read war and peace then because it's the one you know about the russia campaign but yeah, it is so long. I'm a glutton for punishment because then I went on and read Anna Karenina, oh. which is just as long. Yeah, I, I did finish Anna Karenina, but I regretted it. I regretted reading it. Like she could have thrown herself under a train a little while earlier. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm pretty ruthless nowadays. You know, um, I have been for a while, but I, I'm so aware of I have little enough time to do what I really want. If I'm not enjoying a book or, you know, a Netflix series or something, I just can it. I just stop because there's too much content there that I will like to waste my time on something that I'm not enjoying. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the story, as you, you mentioned, Netflix, but, uh, but books as well. There's just so much. There's just so mm. much you could read and so much you could mm. watch that it's sort of gone viral, hasn't it, <laughs> like everything else? And you have to be selective. Yeah, mm. especially especially with TV and um, Netflix slash Prime or whatever. It's it's literally just expanding at an exponential rate because it's feeding mm. the whole world and new content is needed. Um, so, yeah, I'm particularly ruthless with TV, actually. It's got to be mm. damn good to keep watching it because, yeah, there's just, you know, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, it's got to be like that, uh, or I'm not yeah. going to watch it. Yeah. No, I agree, I agree. <laughs> Click over to Wikipedia, find out what happens, job done. I can do that in five minutes. Save myself five hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd read a book as big as War and Peace now, because I look yeah. at it and I think, well, that's three books. I could read three books in the time it takes me to read that. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. I think in my 20s, it was like I had all the time in the world and there were not as many books about to be read. But don't you think part of that is because all of our, I certainly, I speak for myself, but I wonder if your attention span, my attention span has got worse because of the internet, yes. because of using my smartphone, you know, using my scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And I read a newspaper article about the other day that lots of people struggle to read a novel now because they think they should be doing something more quickly. It's so long. <laughs> it's so long. I know. It's that's that's dreadful. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Christian Cameron, the historical fiction author who who writes lots of time periods and sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, amazing author, but his uh book on Alexander the Great called God of War is about a thousand pages. And I've had it since the day it came out and never read it, but I listened to it about a year ago because I can give that time because when you're as you all know, you know when you're listening to an audiobook, you can be in the kitchen, you can be going for a walk, so you can multitask. Yeah. And and I listened to that for 40 hours, but it was amazing, amazing book. So, Napoleon, you, shall I say you've hinted already that you think you think he's crazy. What's your what's your assessment of him? Separate, if you can, the man from the general. What what's your what do you feel about him having? obviously read a lot now about that campaign yeah because Zamoyski Zamoyski has a biography of him as well which I read um and he was an extraordinary man there's no doubt he 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 came from he did come from a privileged background but a, a family that had fallen on hard times and he you know he m most men in his position would have just 
had a career in the army like he did he was an officer not necessarily a very senior one and maybe just lived out his life hadn't got married and had kids so what he did was quite extraordinary to come from being an artillery officer to someone who seized control of the republic and then made himself emperor and also led armies to victory all over europe quite extraordinary his ability to win battles that most people couldn't and to to continue doing it year upon year but what undid him was his was his ego uh, so he wasn't doing it he wasn't doing it because I don't think because he wanted France to be the greatest. He was doing it because he wanted to be the greatest. Yeah. And yet he was, you know, in his personal life, he, he, he Josephine, the great love of his life, was was unfaithful to him um, multiple times. So, you know, it wasn't like he had this happy home life. <laughs> yeah, an enigma in a way. To be fair, I didn't try and investigate his sort of character too much beyond the Russian campaign because I didn't have time uh, as with both of you, I'm you're sure you're acutely aware, if you start researching all the things that are interesting when you're looking into a book, you'd never get anything written. So I have a kind of laser focus of nothing outside 1812 other than what I need to know to set the background yeah. needs to go into the book. So I wouldn't confess to being an expert on Napoleon. I, I just know a lot about that campaign. But, you know, a lot of his senior officers wrote down their interactions with him, particularly Colancourt, who was his master of horse, very loyal servant, one of the only men who told him from before the campaign all the way through it, sire, you mustn't do this. It will go wrong. Please don't invade Russia. The winter is really bad. The Tsar says he'll go to Siberia rather than surrender. He got told so many times. And he just ignored it all. <laughs> uh, and when Colancourt, in despair, asked to resign and to prove that he wasn't a coward, he said, send me to Spain. I will go from Russia to Spain to fight for you, but I can't be here because this is all going to go wrong. Napoleon just tweaked his ear, as he used to do, to men who were uh, he wanted to endear himself to and laughed and rode away on his horse. And Colancourt wrote... What could I do? He couldn't leave him because he was so loyal and Napoleon hadn't given him permission. So, you know, even to people who could see what was going wrong, they still loved him. On the eve of the invasion, he was there on the bank of the Neiman, I've mentioned a couple of times, saying things like, if only Alexander would come to me, we could kiss and make up like brothers and, and I don't need to invade. He just needs to, you know, to come and make good with me. And of course, Alexander had never any intention of that. And so there he was with his 500,000 men. He couldn't just go home, could he? He had to cross. And then he had to find the Russians who he could never find uh, until Borodino. And then once they'd done Borodino, well, we were so near to Moscow, we've got to go there. We can't possibly go home. No. So it sort of had this inevitability to it that because he was in constant search of, of, of the Russians acknowledging that he was their master and not getting it, he had to keep going until he couldn't. And he couldn't admit to himself. He wouldn't listen to his advisors, or Colon Corps particularly. He was also in <laughs> decline. So portraits of him from the time show him starting to be quite overweight, not looking that well. During Borodino, he was actually suffering from dysuria, which means he couldn't pee. Uh, and he was, he was not well the day of the battle. And so he didn't do his normal routine of riding up and down the line, fight, finding out what all the parts of the army were doing and telling them what to do. He stayed in one place for the whole day, which which is one of the reasons it didn't go better for the French. And then he sort of only acted when he had to. So he retreated from, from Moscow when it started snowing. And then he, he left the army when word came that he might lose power in Paris. So he was he was sort of totally convinced that he was right about everything until it literally stared him in the face so much that he he had to admit that it wasn't going his way. But that's not to take away from his, his extraordinary ability. You know, he he held the army together during the retreat, even though most of them died. He he did win across across the Berezina. He got away. And then in 1813, when the Russians followed him into Poland and the Germans all revolted, he fought this series of massive rearguard battles, which he nearly won and he nearly won. And then he nearly won again. And this was without all his veterans and without any cavalry. 
So if he'd had the, that cavalry, 100,000 horses, and he'd had that half a million men uh, at Waterloo, my goodness, I think it would have been a very different battle indeed. I don't know if that answers your question, Derek. I think it does. It's, it's very much the story of a guy whose belief in himself got out of hand and yeah, yeah. You know, couldn't really withdraw from that. And you can sort of see that. You can sort of understand that. I mean, if you keep winning... Why wouldn't you keep winning? It, that, that's kind of the mentality, isn't it? And also, he wasn't used to, well, we're not going to fight you, which is what the Russians did. Yeah. You know, they, they, they let Winter do the job, um, and he, he'd never experienced that before. Yeah. Um, but boy, did he learn his lesson. Yeah. Just like, just like Hitler 130 years later. Don't invade Russia. They just retreat back into the waste and let you stuff. History repeating itself, yeah. So why do you think Napoleon divides historical opinion? Some people see him as this great general, some as a tyrant. I think everyone sees him as a huge ego, don't they? <laughs> I came at it from a slightly different point of view. So your sort of traditional view in Britain is that he's a, you know, he's a bad guy because he's the person that Britain fought for so many years. There's a, you know, obviously people here in this country support Britain against France, but I'm Irish, so I didn't have that, which I regarded as as quite liberating, actually, because I was like, oh, wow, he did this and he did that and yes. he won that battle. And my goodness, this is incredible. <laughs> you know, there were Irish regiments in the French army at the time. And obviously there were Irish regiments in the British army as well. But um, I didn't have an, a mm. sort of an agenda uh, against him. I was just looking at this incredible man and going, he's an egomaniac. He's such an egomaniac. He divides human opinion because what he did had such an effect on European history and society. So the laws that he brought in, a lot of them form the basis of laws all over Europe and indeed in some countries further afield. And quite a lot of what he did exists in France today as well. All right, he 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 didn't he didn't start the revolution, but he continued the notion of it. So you know many of the things he did were quite quite forward thinking, but the human price that uh, yeah. in civilian lives, French lives and the lives of the competence of all the other countries he fought was so vast that um, it's it's difficult to regard him as a good guy. But I think it's it's unwise to demonize him because mm -hmm. he was just better at doing what everybody did at the time. You know, look at what Wellington did. I mean, I don't know. I can't point you to examples because I didn't study the Peninsular Campaign, but I, I bet you Wellington marched his men some horrible distance on occasion and loads of them died uh, or he abandoned the wounded at another battle because he couldn't take them with him and they mm. all died with wellington it was sieges yes and i know for a fact that when his men took towns i remember mm. reading this they you know they went in and they killed and raped and burned because that's what everybody did back then so is wellington a baddie well no no because that's what every general did so he wasn't Hitler. He wasn't going to kill people just because they were Jews or gypsies. He was he was an egomaniac and loads of people died, but he wasn't mm. he wasn't murdering yeah. people out of mm. hand. So he was a very interesting man, a man of his times, an incredibly clever man. But, you know, he was flawed. And uh, mm. the price he, that people paid was that if they were in his way or they were in his army, they probably ended up dead. Mm. So. I'm glad I wasn't around to be in his army or be where his army was coming. Um, but he's a very interesting person to study. I'm not going to judge him uh, too much with 21st century mindset because there's no point. As you say, he's a fascinating character. So the obvious question about Napoleon's spy is, are you planning a sequel or will it remain a standalone? Um, it, it was in meant to be just a standalone, but uh, as I just mentioned in the previous um, few minutes about the, the battles in Germany in 1813, I, I read about them and the lead up to Waterloo. I mean, uh, the, the second title could be The Road to Waterloo. <laughs> That's a great title. And I think I will write it, but I'm not going to do it immediately because I'm I'm well into writing a Viking novel set in Ireland. There's going to be a sequel to that. And then I'm going to finish my Hannibal series, which is is long overdue. So that's that's the next four books. <laughs> I'm very keen to go back and 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 write. It would probably just be one. It would be 1813, 14, and the end of it would be, you know, the Battle of Waterloo. Because mm. again, just the, the 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 events are screaming out to be written in a novel, and that rich seam of sources will be there mm. as well. So yeah. But not not immediately. 
must say you can tell you've really enjoyed writing it yeah. then. Yeah, good, good. I really did. I mean, it was grim. It was so grim, but I, I, it was it was incredibly um, enjoyable to write. You know, if there were that many sources for Roman times, <laughs> I probably would still be writing Roman novels. <laughs> but just to to sort of show your readers the difference, I wrote two novels about Spartacus, the the famous gladiator who led a big rebellion against the Romans, and a total of four thousand words survive about Spartacus. Mm. That's ten pages of a novel. That's all we've got. Yeah. Um. So to have a hundred and fifty, say two hundred and fifty page first hand accounts. It's like, here's the keys to Hamley's little boy, little girl. You know, go and take as many toys as you like. That's a big toy shop in London for listeners outside the UK. Well, you've you've gone mad now with writing in different periods, haven't you? I mean, you're you're all over the place. Vikings now. Yeah, that. Well, you know, I've 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 lost my yeah. fear of going into a different yeah. time period, and also I've regained my enthusiasm for Rome, which was starting yeah. to flag a little, which my editor predicted yeah. you know um she said to me she was uh bernard cornwell's editor sorry the ceo not my editor the ceo of orion she was bernard cornwell's editor for a period 20 odd years ago for six books i think it was and she said do you want to know why mm. he stopped writing sharp novels for a bit and i was i was intrigued i said yeah why and she said he was getting mm. bored yeah. he was getting bored with the napoleonic period so off he went and he did I think it was maybe the American right. Civil War yeah. at, at Starbuck and maybe Gallows Thief or something like that, or the Stonehenge novels um, or novel or the Arthurian, whichever. And then he went back to, to Sharp with a renewed mm. sense of vigor. And I'm champing at the bit to get back and finish Hannibal because it'll have been one, two, three, four, five. It'll have been six books mm. since I wrote a Roman novel. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's nice to move around. So I, I have I had a comment the other day on Facebook. Oh, Ben, you know, I, I didn't really enjoy Napoleon Spy. I want you to go back <laughs> to the Roman stuff. And I was like, okay, great. You know, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. But this author would be bored if he was writing his 22nd or 19th or whatever Roman novel. So I've got yeah. to keep myself excited yeah. or it'll show mm. in the writing. I don't know if either of you would agree with that. I think so. And I think what I'd done sort of when I did sort of eight or nine Wars of the Roses. I mean, I I, I honestly was sick to death of there Wars of the Roses because yeah. I'd done 40 odd podcasts on it as yeah. well, but sort of nonfiction ones. And I needed to change. But I think probably like you, I discovered when I made that leap, in my case, to the sort of late Roman period, was that the skills are all the same. Skills are all exactly the same, no matter what you're writing. Yeah. And it's really a mindset thing of, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can. It's the same path. I'm researching. I'm, I'm getting into it. And I'm then writing a story. Yeah. That's that's what you do. Exactly. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It was just, you know, the fear factor with me. I don't know about yeah. you. It was big with me because I'd done I'd done 11. I'd done 11 Roman novels. And I, I was I was crapping myself because after more yeah. than a decade of, of writing in a fairly narrowish, like two or three century time period, I knew so much about Rome, and I knew I couldn't yeah. replace that with three months' research on the medieval period. So I was kind of going, yeah. "Ah, yeah. you know, I don't know enough. I don't know yeah. enough." And, and I got over that I, that hoodoo, as they call it. And um, you know, I got academics to read it and so on. And there were a few mistakes, but I corrected them. And you know, it won't have been potentially as as richly immersive i don't know as, as some of my roman novels but it, but you know it passed the quality mark um, and yeah and so yeah. yeah i i i loved going into a different time period like the napoleonic and i got cracking with this viking one and i was i wasn't worried at all i was going i need no. to do more research than i've got time but it's really exciting and i do know enough to get a novel started so yeah and i think your point about boredom is is a is a very good one because Instead of boredom, you've got enthusiasm. Yeah. You've got enthusiasm to yeah. learn this new period and to work with it. So I agree. I think it's just the way to go, really. Variety. Yeah, it really is. As an author, and I'm sure you are both the same, I have a different experience reading a novel because I'm I'm looking yeah. at it from the view of a of a writer as well as a reader. But I can tell 
and I wouldn't ever name names, but I can tell when an author is getting tired mm. with a particular yeah. character, whether it be a crime novel or, or historical or whatever, and it's the 23rd novel in the series. It often shows in the writing. Yeah. And some readers will pick up on that. They might just go, oh, that wasn't as good mm. as the last one. I don't think I'll buy the next one. And yeah, I'm sure it'll happen to all of us, but I want that day to be a very long way into the future, you know, when I'm basically 90 and I shouldn't really be writing anymore. <laughs> Somebody said to me, are you going to are you going to do something sort of post Wars of the Roses with the same characters? And they, they asked me this about three years ago. And I said, Oh no, I just yeah. I've had I've done yeah. with it. But now I'm starting to think, <laughs> hang on, you know, maybe I might go back to that. <laughs> Take one into the Tudors. <laughs> it's like the band, the band's being tempted into another yeah. tour. Oh, I might be fun yeah. to go on the road again. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, it is, has been absolutely fabulous talking to you, Ben. Good luck with Napoleon's Spy. I'm sure it will continue to sell for a long time to come. Thank you. It got to number 11, which is always, which is great, <laughs> yeah. but it's always frustrating it didn't hit 10, <laughs> which is all that gets published in the paper yeah. for, for your listeners. Yeah. But number 11 out of, I mean, how many books are published a year nowadays? Oh, a week. <laughs> but every week yeah. it would be up against yeah. probably... 80 100 i would yeah. say if not more yeah yeah so yeah yeah no it's great don't get me wrong i ain't complaining anyway it's been great to talk to you well thank you it's been great really really fun uh thank you both i dare say a certain viking book will need to be discussed at some point oh yes and that might actually fit we may not even have to go rogue with that one <laughs> yeah well there's a massive difference between the situation in britain and ireland which i wasn't really aware of so You've got your Wessex uh, against, you know, Essex and, and Northumbria in the Viking times in England, a very clear demarcation. In Ireland, it was totally different. They, 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 they didn't have towns. They married the locals. Uh, there were Norse and Hiberno-Norse and Irish. And, and in, when you had wars, it was there were frequently Norsemen on both sides um, the whole way along. So it's, it's quite a different situation, actually, which is which is nice because... It, you know, it, it's interesting and hopefully readers will, will will learn from it. Yeah, we like different. We like things to be uh, slightly off the normal. So that sounds good. OK. Yeah. No, good. thank you, Ben. Oh, thank you very much. OK, then. Thank you. All the best. Yeah. Bye bye. All right. So thank you very much to Ben Kane. Um, if you want to get a hold of his novel, it's called Napoleon's Spy. And that's the end of our first ever A Slice of Medieval Goes Rogue. We hope you've enjoyed it. Joining us next time will be Anne O'Brien talking about the Paston family, um, which I'm really looking forward to because uh, they wrote so many letters and it's going to be interesting to hear Anne's take on them. So do join us next time. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to next time.